I'm Dr. Fred Silva of Arcana Laboratories, coming to you from Little Rock, Arkansas, with another installment of Throwback Thursday. Secondary tubular interstitial disease. What in the world does secondary tubular interstitial disease in patients with glomerulonephritis really mean? We often say when we have a renal biopsy that shows a glomerular and a tubular interstitial process, TID, that the TID is secondary to the glomerular process. What does that mean? How does it happen? And how do you know? This is a problem that has concerned me and others for 40 years, and I've yet to see a great abstract or presentation at a renal meeting, such as the ASN-NKF, that addresses the problem. First question, how can a primary glomerular disease lead to a true secondary tubulointerstitial process? When there are morphologic alterations of both the glomerular and the tubulointerstitial regions, we often automatically say that the tubulointerstitial process is secondary to the glomerular process. What really does secondary mean? Is this true or just hiding our ignorance with this term secondary? A number of mechanisms have been suggested as to how a glomerular disease process can lead to secondary tubulointerstitial disease. They include A, protein leakage by the glomerular infiltrate into the tubular lumen, resulting in tubular injury, and subsequently the interstitium. Sustained proteinuria has been shown to give rise to, or at least be associated with tubulointerstitial disease, and eventuate in renal failure. A number of molecules reabsorbed by the tubules are thought to injure the tubules, producing a cytokine storm. B. A Crits lesion, as I call it, with an adhesion of the glomerulus to Bowman's capsule with continuing glomerular ultrafiltration, leading to changes in Bowman's capsule and its interface with the adjacent interstitium. There is often a segmental adherent scar. Paraglomerular exudates containing profibrotic factors may reach the tubules through interstitial routes and initiate injury. C. Of course, because most of the renal parenchyma tubules are supplied by the postglomerular blood supply coming through the glomerulus and exiting the glomerulus via the efferent arterioles and thus supplying these end organ vessels, the renal tubules, any process that solidifies or compromises the glomerulus will end the blood flow to the renal parenchyma via the efferent arterioles. This may also be associated with loss of the paratubular interstitial capillary system. D. A general loss of nephrons may lead to compensatory mechanisms in the remaining nephrons, that is, glomerular hypertension, hyperfiltration, hypertrophy, which may somehow lead to tubular interstitial disease as well, known as the Shimamura morrison and Brenner hypothesis. E. If there are disorders of the glomerulus which lead to renal insufficiency, it is well known that therapeutic drug dosages need to be adjusted, especially if these therapeutic agents are known to be excreted by the kidneys. If the doses are not adjusted appropriately, then increased delivery of the drug to the portion of the tubule involved in ridding the body of the drug, usually the S2, S3, or P2, P3 portion of the proximal tubule, may be injured.
Second question, can an underlying pathogenetic mechanism lead independently to a glomerular disease and also independently to a tubular interstitial disease or process? In autoimmune diseases such as SLE, Sjogren's, mixed connective tissue diseases, whether the production of antibodies to various antigens are different in those leading to glomerular changes to those involving the tubular interstitial regions. Another question, could the glomerular process be caused by one pathogenetic etiologic process and the tubular interstitial process be caused by a different second etiologic process? Number four, can there be a primary tubular interstitial process that appears much more severe morphologically than a mild glomerular process or glomeruli with minimal alterations? An example of major morphologic differences in patients taking NSAIDs showing the glomeruli minimal change disease with global effacement of podocyte foot processes, whereas the interstitial changes are primarily those of interstitial inflammation with and without tubular damage. Whether the NSAIDs in these patients lead to two different patterns of disease, that is glomerular versus tubular interstitial, by different mechanisms is unknown and will remain unknown until the exact pathogenetic mechanisms are known. Number five, should we always be clumping, combining tubular atrophy with interstitial fibrosis? That is, can you have tubular atrophy without interstitial fibrosis? And conversely, can you have interstitial fibrosis without tubular atrophy? We have all seen renal biopsies from patients with diabetes or SLE in which the interstitial fibrosis, tubular atrophy, known as IFTA, appears out of proportion to the glomerular involvement. Assuming the biopsy is truly representative of the kidney at large, this makes one suspect that the tubular interstitial disease is primary and more important than the glomerular process. It used to be rare for this to happen, but we've seen a number of renal biopsies in which this seems to have occurred. An etiology of the tubular interstitial disease appears to be more important to determine than anything involving the glomerulus, such as drug hypersensitivity, allergy, toxicity. Number six, a word about interstitial fibrosis in the cortex. Where does it come from? The interstitial fibrosis has been suggested as coming from a number of regions, including from the tubular epithelial to mesenchymal transition, to myofibroblasts that originate from fibroblasts and parasites from the adventitia of nearby intrarenal arteries or blood vessels. A large number of chemoattractants, such as cytokines and other growth factors, have been suggested as the mediation process by which these fibroblasts grow, move, and produce collagen. That is a story for another time. And finally, secondary glomerulonephropathy can result from primary tubular interstitial disease as well as renal vascular diseases, which can contribute to the progression of renal damage. Abnormal tubuloglomerular feedback, known as retrocontrol, may lead to renal glomerular vasoconstriction, which affects all renal compartments. This brief review does not include how primary tubular interstitial processes can lead to secondary glomerular processes, nor the exact molecules involved at each level. The questions remain. 
Thank you for listening. This podcast and more can be found in the iTunes and Google Play stores. For more information and educational programming like this, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit us on the web at arcanalabs.com.